This morning's reading is from 1 Peter, uh, chapter 2, starting at verse 9. And it's on the screens. It's absolutely amazing. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who calls you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you are not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Amen. Good morning, everybody. As we begin, I'd love to ask you a question about these two words, saint or sinner. In a moment, on the screen are gonna come various different people that you may know, and I want your immediate reaction. Do you more likely to call them a saint or a sinner? Okay, audience participation. Here we go, which of these two words do you associate with the following people? So, Mother Teresa, saint or sinner? Saint, put your hand up. Great, put your hands down. Sinner, put your hand up. Okay, what about this person? Martin Luther King, saint, put your hand up. Sinner, put your hand up. Okay, next person, Billy Graham. If you don't know who Billy Graham was, he was a preacher in the 20th century, particularly died recently, kind of changed the landscape a little bit uh, in much of Christian uh, tradition. Uh, Saint or sinner? Saint. Okay, sinner. Okay, one or two more hands. Finally, Justin Bieber. (laughs) Justin Bieber, saint or sinner? Saint. Few, yep. Sinner. Okay, final one. Okay, you. Put your hands up, saint. Okay, next one, sinner. Do you more readily identify as a saint or a sinner? Because this morning we're continuing our series where we're looking at some of the tensions that are there in the Bible. Some things that seem to confuse us, that seem to be sort of against each other. And as we've unpacked these tensions, we're beginning to discover that actually in the middle of these tensions, if we bear with them, there is something beautiful. And today's question, today's tension is a very simple one. Sinner and saint, can you be both? And this question gets to the core of who we are as people. It gets to the core of what Christianity is all about. And it gets to the core of how we relate to each other, both in church, in our families, in amongst our friends, our work, whatever it may be. If we're new to the Christian story and we find ourselves at church this morning for whatever reason, one, because we're maybe interested, two, we're kind of exploring things, three, we're just invited along or we kind of have to be there, whatever it may be. If we're new to the Christian story, If we grasp this tension, I guarantee it will change your life. Guarantee. Your life, if you get it this morning, 
and we pray in God's goodness you will, everything will be different. And if you're not new to the Christian story, you've been following Jesus for a little while or you kind of know your way a little bit, if we really understand this and allow God in his goodness (laughs) this morning to do his work, your life will never ever be the same again. Because we all know that humans are capable of of the most stunningly beautiful acts and the most horrific things. As a species, we are capable of the deepest, most lovely hug and the Holocaust. We are Jekyll and Hyde. However many technical and scientific advances we make that are wonderful, changing the life for so many millions and billions of people, in the same breath, the very scientific and technical advances cause more pain, more sadness, and more heartache. In the words of the philosophers of our age, take that. (laughs) I have so many, so many flaws If you take me, they're yours. We are flawed, and the passage that we've just read together reveals some beauty about this quandary that we find ourselves in. This letter that we read from Peter, who is a follower of Jesus, is written to some Christians who've been scattered all across the area, and they're scattered because people are basically trying to wipe out the church. And as a result, Peter writes a letter to encourage them to keep going that Jesus wins. You're on the right team, basically. And he says these incredible words. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. You're holy, he says. That word, holy, an ancient word that we'll come back to. Hold it here for a moment. They are holy, says Peter. And yet two verses later, in the same bit we read, we also read this. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. So he says you are holy. Stop sinning. You are holy. Live like it. You are holy, be holy. Or another example. Paul, another one of the followers of Jesus, wrote these words in his letter to a church in Corinth. This church was far from perfect, but yet look how he describes these Christians. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. Do you notice? They are sanctified. And they're called to be his holy people. Older translations put it like this. This is the King James Version. Unto the church of God which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. And if we were able to read this in the original language that it was written, we would see that word sanctified and the word saints or holy, and we would see them looking remarkably similar because they are the same root. 
What both Paul and Peter are saying is, you are holy, you are saints, and so live like saints. You are holy, be holy. You are, and so be. Let me give you an illustration of this. Meghan Markle. A few weeks ago, she was just Meghan Markle. And then she had a little service, put on a pretty dress, and now she's not just Meghan Markle. She's the Duchess of Sussex and all the other titles that go with it. What's changed? Her status has changed. And now her calling is to then live out that status as a duchess, as part of royalty. And so like yesterday, what did you see? You saw in amongst the trooping of the color, there she was with the queen and everybody being royal, <laughs> as royals do. Why? Because the moment she said, I will, her status changed. She is now royalty, and therefore for the next 70 plus years of her life, whatever it may be, she's then to live as royalty. The same, say the writers in the New Testament. Because of something that has happened, you are holy, you are saints, and therefore live out that calling, live as saints, be holy. And the good news in this is that this calling that we're called to is when one we're not on our own. Another book in the New Testament says it like this, for by one sacrifice, that's Jesus' death on a cross, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Do you see that? They are made perfect because of Jesus, those who are being made holy. They're saints because of Jesus and they're being made into saints. And it's not their own strength. They are being made by God's spirit at work, that power we've been thinking of, changing lives, making us more like Jesus as we do our best to follow him. So let's dig a bit deeper a moment for what it means to be a saint. I think we need to get a few ideas out of our mind. Certain people of a certain generation need to get this idea straight out of their mind. Let's just get rid of it. Roger Moore, nothing to do with what we're talking about. But probably more of us have got images like this in our mind. And we've got this idea that there's sort of a kind of a crack team of Christians down through history that are sort of the A game, you know, the A team that had it all together and somehow they're the special ones, they are the saints. And because of certain Christian traditions that have kind of designated them as such, these are sort of the uber Christians, do you know what I mean? And little old us, wow, they're amazing. And people like him, Athanasius, brilliant stuff, but we're never gonna be like that. The beauty of what the New Testament teaches is that Athanasius, great guy, did some special stuff, but he's no different in God's eyes than little old you or me, if we're followers of Jesus. Why? Because we are sanctified, we are made saints, not by us, but by what Jesus has done. We are saints, and there we're called, we're called to live out the life of what it means to be a saint. 
So therefore, if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, you could have, and I know some of you did, put your hands up and said, identify as a saint. And I want to encourage you to do that now. Look at the person next to you. They are a saint if they are a follower of Jesus. You can tell them if you'd like. And do you know what? They can say it back to you. And it's not to do with how special you are. It's because if you're a follower of Christ, your status has changed. St. Andrew, St. Ben, St. Rachel, St. Steve, St. whatever your name may be, you can leave this morning with a bit of swagger. (laughs) We'll get there, don't worry. This is good news. And can I just say, if you are new to the Christian story and there are alarm bells ringing in your brain, I fully identify with this and I understand. Because I know for some have got the impression that somehow Christians think or even live as though they are better than other people. And so the impression is given that Christians think that they're pretty special and the swagger they have is just about how holy ye aren't I the business. Listen again to what Paul said. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. In other words, they are not special. Jesus is the special one. And it's only because in repentance and faith, knowing their need of a savior, they've said, God, I've got nothing, that therefore God looks at Christ and says, holy. In the same way that Meghan Markle is now a duchess, because her relationship status has changed, if you're a follower of Jesus, your relationship status has changed. Not because you start living like it, but because of what Jesus has done, and so therefore the outworking of it is to live like it. And so we end up with this quandary. Because not only therefore can you identify as a saint, we all know that there's stuff that is very, very unsaint-like in our lives. Because the same Paul that wrote those words to the church in Corinth said these words about himself. These are radical game changers. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. He doesn't say of whom I used to be the worst. I was pretty bad. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save the sinners like me of whom I am now the worst. He knows what he's written to Corinth. He knows that in Christ he is a saint and yet he knows also with all his stuff he is a sinner and he can identify as the worst of sinners. And in case you think that Paul was particularly bad, and we don't have to quite go there, that's a bit full on, I'm a sinner, but not like them. (laughs) This is what Paul goes on to say. 
I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. What he's simply saying is we are all sinners. Look at what God's done in my life. He could do the same in yours. And so for those of us here who are new to the Christian story and you've got concerns because you've always thought that Christians think more highly of themselves, can I say Christians ought to be walking around thinking they are the worst sinners in the planet. And it's only when we begin to grasp that do we see how good news the gospel really, really is. You hear the phrase banded around, the church is the hope of the world. It's only the hope of the world because it's God's church, not because of us. And we miss how revolutionary this is. In the ancient world, heroes were held up as up here. And we kind of just called little old us to try to emulate this sort of warrior-like, amazing guru-like status. And yet here you've got Paul saying, I'm the worst of sinners. You think of your stuff, I'm 10 times worse. Throughout the pages of scriptures, you've got story after story, not of heroes who are to be emulated, but of broken, flawed people like little old you and me who God rescues and then uses for his purposes. That's the good news of Christianity, not that you're special, but that Christ takes people like little old you and me and rescues us, making us saints with all our stuff, and therefore he shines brightly. That is so radical, and can I say, no other worldview, no other religious system has anything on this. Because what do we do with the stuff that we know we all have? Even today, how difficult it is for politicians or business executives to apologize. Or even in our own lives, when people say, pick up something that we've done wrong, we automatically go into a posture of defense. Well, you did this, you know. We so grapple with this, and yet we all know we're weak. We all know we've got flaws. We all know we're sinners. And I think when we grasp this approach to being a sinner, it changes our perspective in two different ways. Firstly, there is no place for this. The sort of, you've got it wrong attitude. The sort of judgmental approach. How much damage is done by us as Christians giving the impression that we're somehow superior? There's no place for it. But also there's no room for this approach to sin. The sort of naughty but nice. You know, the slimming world version of sin. We're all basically good, but just every now and again, a little bit of naughtiness peps it up. We know there really is a problem with us. And we've all got it. A virus, if you like. And we all know this because we know that when somebody sins against us, wrongs us, it's not playful, naughty, but nice. It rips us apart. Sin is real. What did Peter say? Those sinful desires wage war against your soul. And Terry Eagleton is a British philosopher, not a Christian, he's an atheist. But he's written a lot on stuff like this. He wrote a book on evil, interesting book, fascinating. And 
he has a perspective as a Marxist philosopher that the greatest gift of the church to society is the doctrine of original sin. Because he recognizes that no one has any other perspective on what do we do with the stuff? Why do we keep on causing so much harm? Even with our advances, even with our technological achievements, it just leads to more and more and more and more pain with ourselves and with other people. Where do you go with your stuff if we don't acknowledge your own weakness? And so, are you a saint or a sinner? The answer is yes. Those people at the start, they all identify as Christians. And so therefore, if that's true, according to the Bible, they are both saint and sinner because it's got nothing to do, the sainthood is not to do with them, it's what Christ has done. And I think holding these two things in tension changes everything. And it's when we forget one dimension of it, we lead to massive, massive issues. And it changes it in two ways as we come to a close. This is a game changer in how we see ourselves. And it's a game changer in how we see each other. Because if we grasp that because of Christ, we're both saint and sinner, it leads to profound humility and massive confidence. Because there's no place to thinking too highly of ourselves, but there's also no place to thinking too lowly of ourselves. Let me give you an example. It changes how we see ourselves. We live in a society that at the moment that is characterized by shame, outrage, and self-loathing. This central but forgotten doctrine of Christianity about the fact that we are all sinful, I want to suggest is one of the greatest gifts for our world. Because it's only when we realize we all got issues, and yet only when we realize that in that, Christ dies for us, and it's through him we are saints, there is no room for self-loathing, but there's also no room for self-worship. My wife Claire and I with some friends were at the Mac the other day in Cannon Hill Park. We were outside, it was a lovely day outside having an ice cream, you know, in that kind of uh, seating area. And then these two women came along, and I guess they were late teens, early 20s. And they were really, really kind of dressed up really made up, had had all the kind of work done. And they were sat by us. And then for about five minutes, they were sat next to each other and basically on their phones, were basically taking selfies, trying to get the right angle, you know, and sort of pouting Victoria Beckham-like, you know, and all that, sort of push, pushing the, you know, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> and me and Claire and, and her friends, we just were chatting, and we felt an overwhelming sense of sadness. That you kind of wanted to go up to us, but because of our British reserve, we didn't. Um, go up to them and say, do you know you have a father in heaven who will wipe away all that makeup, take away all that surgery, and loves you, 
sees a beauty that is worth dying for. So that you don't have to pout, you don't have to pretend, you don't have to present yourself as some sort of way so that you'll be accepted on social media. The God of eternity who crafted you, created you, made you, loves you. It's a game changer. And as I was preparing this, I had a sense that I think some of us here this morning just need to hear three words, and those words are, you're doing fine. You're doing fine. You really are. In our society where we think about how we have to present ourselves, you're doing fine. There is a God in heaven who loves you passionately, loves you, the real you. So it means we can't treat ourselves too lowly. And yet, if we're honest, we know there are some of us that the challenge here that we have no problems with that stuff, but we already walk around with a bit of swagger. (laughs) And if we're honest, we do think of ourselves slightly higher than other people. We're the ones who've got it sorted. If only everyone was like me. And this morning, the message is, you may well be a saint, but that's got nothing to do with you. And Paul, Paul, knew that he was the worst of sinners. So it changes everything, how we see ourselves. But it also changes how we see others, and as we come to a close, in our relationships. Because it means that in our relationships, in our friendships, in our family, in our kind of romantic relationships, we expect failure. We know that this person or these friends will let us down. Why? Because I will let them down too. Why? Because we are both saint and sinner. Let me give an example. For example, marriage. The British philosopher Alain de Botton caused a bit of a stir recently when he wrote an article in which he said, you will marry the wrong person. My generation grew up with the Jerry Maguire generation. You complete me. And the reality is we are seeing the legacy of that view that if we think that any one person will be the one that we can put all of that weight on satisfaction in life, they will only let us down. They will always disappoint because they are a sinner just like you and me. I've shown this cartoon before, but I think it's immensely powerful. And it applies to marriage, it applies to friendship, family relationships. This cartoon by a French cartoonist, in which in this case, there's a woman painting her a picture of an ideal man. But it's not just romantic friendships, whatever it may be. And she describes it, look, and then she's giving him this bunch of flowers and kissing him. This This is the one. And then you see the real person beginning to deconstruct that picture. And then ultimately, it's in tatters on the floor. She drops a bunch of flowers. And then there she is in this hug with this real person with her head slightly stooped. That is the reality of all human interactions. You will only be let down. And you know what? You will only let them down because we are sinners and saints. I think if we grasp this, it changes every little interaction. 
Because we know that every time we're casting an accusation at them, we've got three fingers pointing back at us. And it changes everything because we know that when somebody picks up something in our that we've done wrong or need to be changed, we can think to ourselves, thank goodness they only know that. They didn't know these other 10 things that I was thinking or this other thing that I said behind their back or whatever it might be. Changes everything. And can I say, without laboring the point, I think biblically this is what marriage is. Marriage is, if you like, an enacted parable about what Jesus' relationship with the church. It's all about practicing and experiencing forgiveness with a fellow sinner. That's what church is about. Living out forgiveness with fellow sinners. And some I know in this room have experienced pain to do with those relationships and massive breakup from it. And I want to say from those stories that I know, there's a huge testimony to God's goodness and his grace in your life, the way you navigated such pain with such profound humility and beauty. It's a real testimony to many of us. The reality is when we grasp that we are saint because of Christ and sinner, everything changes. My wife Claire and I have this little private joke. It's not private now. Uh, (laughs) That I was Claire's biggest disappointment when we got together. I don't say that in a sort of woe is me way, because I was a kind of church leader type. You know, wow, until she got to know me. (laughs) And that's true of all of us, isn't it? We're sinners, saved by grace, declared saints. And this cartoon therefore changes our interactions in church, in friendship, in our families, at work, because we're able to build each other up, walking as brothers and sisters, friends, fellow sinners, rather than lording it over or being stomped on. So I close with these words again. For by one sacrifice, He's made perfect forever those who are being made holy. May we grasp that. May it change our world. Let's pray together. Father, we know that you know everything about us. Father, I pray for those in this room who have a too low opinion of themselves. Holy Spirit, even now, would you lift their eyes? Embrace them, would they know your affection for them? And for those of us in this room who think forgotten just how devastating our sin is, thank you. Continue your good work of making us holy, we pray, by your spirit, your power at work in us. And may we then share this message with this world that so desperately needs this hope. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.